Hello and welcome, and welcome, dear colleagues, Victor Sonnebeck and Tia Koren. Thank you. Hi. Thank you very much. Good to be back with another podcast. Absolutely. A new Nordea on your mind report out, meaning that we have a new podcast on the topic, which this time is about owners. A pretty exciting title on this Nordea on your mind, I think. The Ideal Owners, and a topic we have been thinking about for some time. Do different types of owners having different agendas and strengths and weaknesses affect how corporates perform? Does it matter what kind of owner you have? And I guess it's fair to say that we weren't entirely certain how strong conclusions we would be able to draw from the analysis we would be able to do. But I'm very, very happy to say I certainly am very relieved that we actually managed to reach relatively strong conclusions, pretty pretty striking conclusions even. But um, before we get into all that analysis in depth, I think it's probably a good place to start to describe a little bit to the listeners what kind of data we managed to find to look at more closely to look for these conclusions. So um, we've reviewed about 2,000 companies, uh, European listed companies with a market cap above 500 million euros. And we've broken down this data and categorized all these uh, different types of owners into four different types. So we have the financial institutions, we have private equity, the state, and also strategic entities. And then we also wanted to do a simpler split. So we've also taken these four owner types and split them into strategic and non-strategic owners. And last but not least, we've also looked at major owners versus more wildly held, you can say. So how could we describe these uh, ownership types and some of their characteristics? I guess in essence, you, you could say that that's been, been kind of the issue, right? Having a look at, at the, the entire ownership structure for uh, the listed corporate universe uh, in the European uh, Union. Uh, and we're talking about a lot of different investors for a lot of different companies with different type of, uh, of uh, share types, with different voting rights, etc. Uh, but we, we did do this uh, classification. Right, you are. Exactly. And as usual, when we take on a new topic to analyze, a, a pretty interesting challenge to come to terms with what data is there and how can we actually make use of it to make comparisons and do our analysis and hopefully draw some conclusions uh, which carry some weight. And as you described, Tia, we, we had several different types of categorization and looking at the sort of basic approach, what kinds of owners are there out there if we want to make a comparison and see, do we find any evidence suggesting that companies perform differently depending on what kind of owner they, they, they have? We decided to look at institutional investors, private equity, state ownership and strategic entities. And the institutional investors are mutual fund companies, pension funds, financial investors who buy shares in companies because they want to have a return on that investment. So they're not involved with the business necessarily strategically. They clearly have a very, very professional focus. They are dispassionate. They don't have any sort of emotional attachment to companies they invest in. But potential disadvantages with those institutions might be that they are not necessarily an active strategic owner. They don't really maybe get as deeply involved in the business And if they are not happy about what the management of the company is doing, the easy choice for them is to just sell their shares and move on and invest in something else rather than try and stay there and influence and push the agenda in the direction they would like to see. Private equity, they have their own pretty unique model where they basically aim to to invest at an attractive price and then improve a business operationally, make it a lot better in terms of financial performance and then with a sort of medium-term horizon sell. Uh, and realize the profits from from that journey. So strengths with private equity ownership would naturally 
we assumed at least, include that they can have a pretty relentless focus on improving performance with the full control to really drive that agenda. But potential disadvantages might be that they don't have the sort of truly long-term horizon since the plan from the very beginning is to sell at some point, typically with a sort of three to seven year view. And the question is, if you have that kind of time horizon and agenda, are you going to be willing to invest enough in the business if there is a need to do so to make it expand? Would you say for these two two first types of investors, so the institutional investors and the, the private equity investors, that you typically see a kind of lower threshold for for um, exiting the position um, and, and instead focusing the capital on something else? I think that's fair and, and, and for different reasons for those two. For the financial investors, obviously, because for them it's the easy way to find a new way forward if they're not happy with where things are going, where they are invested today. And for the private equity players, as I said, because that's the plan from the very beginning, they don't have any ambition to do anything other than that. They want to make sure the improvement happens and then sell out and realize the profit from the improvement they helped create. That's the business model. Yeah, so so that's also dispassionate. In a way. And if we take the other two types that we decided to, to um, use to define for our comparison in our analysis, state ownership is what I guess we all naturally can see as the government in in one form or another through some sort of entity taking an ownership in listed companies. And what is the the potential advantage of having a state owner in the company? Well, well, obviously the strength of that owner, uh, the stability, the predictability, and the, in theory, unlimited financial resources of that owner. And the potential disadvantages with state ownership might depend a little bit on how cynical we want to be, right? Um, Is there a very sticky agenda where they may want to get other things out of their ownership than the company performing financially as strongly as possible and and how good is the governance so do decisions take a long time and, and are there other factors behind the scenes which affect what kind of decisions they want to take political perhaps or indeed could be other other things as well i guess absolutely and and then there would also be potentially a dimension of, of political means right in, in in terms of how how corrupt or transparent might uh, the entity or the government be which has an ownership in, in that particular company and the, the final category, which in a way perhaps is the most interesting one, is what we call strategic entities. And what is that? Well, that would be owners which have an attachment, commitment to a business they invest in, which goes beyond just what happens to the share price and whatever payouts you might get from the shares that you own in it, that they would have also potentially reach and resources, depending on what they look like. And, and the, the sort of Owners included in the category strategic entities are founders, families, family offices, foundations, or investment companies in various forms. So those who are dedicated beyond the share trade to their investment in in that particular company. And potential disadvantages with that kind of owner might be that they typically want to have a high degree of, of influence in the company in which they have invested. And then if the situation arises where there is a need for more capital, well, they might need to be diluted if more capital is to be added and they might not want to give up the influence that they have. And then they have a bias, perhaps, not favoring bringing in new capital in order to preserve the influence that they have. And in a way, similar to for state owners, are there other agenda items that they are pursuing? Are there emotional factors? Is there a matter of prestige? Or or even, if you want to be really cynical, using the company and your influence in the company as a platform to create jobs for family members, those kinds of things. And, and all in all, two major factors would be the the, uh, the fact that they are typically more long-term. And what you mentioned with being a more kind of sticky owner, uh, you, you're not as likely to simply give up your ownership uh, in, in such a setup. Indeed, um, a greater degree of commitment in a way. But 
having identified these types of owners that we felt useful to work with to be able to do our analysis, what about taking a look at European large-listed companies that Tia mentioned? Uh, Victor, if you would describe what ownership looks like in Europe in, in a simple kind of way, what is it that we see? One of the first things we did was to classify these types of investors and, and look at whether or not we could see regional differences. So comparing the Nordic countries uh, amongst each other, but also comparing the Nordic region uh, with uh, continental Europe as well as uh, as uh, the UK. And I guess that that's kind of the split uh, you can see there with, with there being kind of three ways of going about it. Uh, and if we start with the Nordic ownership model, um, it, it resembles the European one in that institutional and strategic owners are by far the, the largest uh, groups. So so uh, institutional st- strategic owners typically re- represent uh, over 90% of the ownership base, meaning that's, that state owners or, or private equity owners are, are in the minority. And it, uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's a pretty similar picture in, in the Nordics as it is in the rest of Europe with the difference that continental Europe is a bit more tilted towards strategic owners. So so there's a kind of larger share of owners in the Nordics that are institutional than they are in in, in Europe. On the other hand, if you look to to, uh, the UK, we see a very strikingly high share of institutional ownership. So in this region, what we classify as strategic owners become become a much less part uh, of, uh, of the complete ownership landscape. And this might have to do with a, a lot of different regional aspects. Could be uh, legal aspects, could could be cultural aspects. If you want to go into some of the reasoning behind that, Johan, what, what, what could be the reason for this, this difference in, in ownership structure? This is really an interesting one. And also we, in the report, even described that UK aspect in European context as the Anglo-Saxon model of ownership where you have these financial institutions being the dominant type of owner. Without having done the same exercise for American companies, we, we, we are aware that there is a similar kind of pattern when it comes to ownership in, in, in the US, in North America, like we see here in Europe, in the UK. And that distinction, I think, as you put it, has a lot to do with history and legacy, uh, but also with the level of sophistication and size of the financial markets, and, and where there is an extremely well-developed, very sizable, very sophisticated capital market in the US, to a high degree also in the UK, and where there has been, I think it's it's fair to describe it as not an abundance, at least more than sufficient risk capital available to fund companies, expanding companies, both newer companies and mature established companies, so that this kind of ownership base has been available to, to rely on for, for providing capital. So kind of having the prerequisites for 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 you know uh, allowing this to happen, yeah. the, the scene the scene is set in such a way that yeah. that it's more likely to to look as it is, and, look and like it does. And, and and in a continental European context, and to some degree in an Nordic context, there has has been perhaps a greater need for entrepreneurs, family entities, or dedicated investment vehicles to step in and be an owner with the capital commitment and also taking responsibility for developing a business and and being involved in it long term in depth. So I, I think that it's 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 to a great degree explained by. Need Need, but also history and 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 uh, and development and availability. What about state ownership? Would you say is it a large share of uh, overall ownership, and, and does it differ? Uh, depending on region or, or, or country. I mean, the, the differences are not huge. I mean, in, in Europe as a whole, we saw in our data with state ownership being between 5 and 6% of the total. So not a major part at all. But it is, interestingly, a bit different from country to country. Here in the Nordics, Finland stands out in having sort of twice that level of state ownership, whereas the other Nordic countries are more in line with the rest of Europe as a whole. But there are also some differences when it comes to state ownership, which perhaps are more telling when you look at ownership per sector. 
And I think, Tia, if you want to add just not just the state ownership dimension, but but if we look at the, the four categories, there are some observations that some sectors stand out, right, when it comes to who are the big owners. Absolutely. So um, we could start off with looking at the institutional investors, for example. They appear to have the lowest exposure in energy and utilities. But then if we look at the state ownership, then energy and utilities are actually the biggest sectors here. So that's a kind of complete opposite situation we have. For the strategic owners, we see that they have the least exposure in financial. And then looking at PE, they seem to favorize them tech and healthcare, which maybe is no surprise. No, and I think when we saw this sector split of ownership in who are the big types of owners in the various respective pan-European sectors, we didn't perhaps quite fall off our chairs with shock and surprise either. Uh, it, it, it intuitively makes sense in many cases. So for private equity, I, I think where they are big, they're not really huge anywhere. But if you look at where they are more commonly an owner than where they are not so commonly an owner, it relates to a very great extent on how they do business and how they generate value and, and where they would tend to avoid very capital-heavy industries just because of the, the sort of focus on, on cash flow generation, being able to carry a lot of debt, etc., among other factors. And, and looking at other sectors, when, when we see state ownership being particularly high in utilities and energy, it also intuitively makes sense from the point of view of there being a very strong national interest or even national security dimension behind state ownership. So quite strategic sectors for for a state owner. So, and, and this we need to remember also, we're talking about a, a universe of listed companies. So we don't capture the entire corporate universe. There's, of course, a lot of privately owned companies beyond what we see for these large listed companies where there is state ownership in other areas, which are not perhaps as common among listed companies. But, but energy and utilities would be classical examples of nationally critical infrastructure which the state wants to have an influence over for, for national security or national interest reasons. So not a surprise again, I think. But wouldn't you kind of expect that healthcare maybe would also be at the top of the list? I think that's a really interesting one, Tia. And, and, and I think that, you, know, you, you are even more right than you think, than you say that perhaps, because we did see now that we had this pandemic, unfortunately, hitting us during 2020, right? That in the early phase during the first wave of the pandemic, one example of what you describe is that the German state went in and bought a big controlling stake in, in BioNTech in Germany. Uh, one of the makers of the big makers of uh, COVID vaccines. They didn't do that because BioNTech needed a lot of capital and they had to step in, right? Not at all, because they had more demand than they could actually supply. They did that because they wanted to have a say in how the company would ramp up production of vaccines and how those vaccines would be allocated. So that was a very clear, specific situation, in this case a global pandemic, where there was a very strong national interest that we saw expressed as that particular government deciding to step in and become an owner in, in, in a biotech company. So so I think it, it's probably a matter of what is at the moment seen as at the top of the sort of national interest agenda. And is it at the top on such a high level, high up on the agenda, that it is justified to actually commit capital to, to pursue those national interests, where I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I have to guess that this is not the last state move we see in the healthcare sector. But beyond these differences in, 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 in various pan-European sectors, um, as we mentioned in the beginning here, we've also made some simpler splits into basic ownership categories to be able to draw some more conclusions about ownership. Um, and, and, and Tia, do you want to describe a little bit what we did there to, to not look at these four, but rather easier distinctions between different types of owners? 
Sure. Just to clarify, the strategic owners are the strategic entities and state owners. And then we've categorized the non-strategic as owners who are PE and institutional owners. So looking at the Nordics, they have a slightly less strategic ownership than Europe. But if we look at Europe and the Nordics overall, the share of non-strategic owners is higher in both regions. If we go into this a bit more country-specific, we see that the strategic ownership share rises the further south in Europe we go. And Italy is actually on the top of the list here, with nearly 70% of strategic owners. The UK is on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, with the highest share of non-strategic owners. So this would be the, the before-mentioned Anglo-Saxon model, then, with, with having a higher share of, of uh, institutional owners. Yeah. But another thing that we've done in this in this uh, exercise is to classify owners depending on whether or not they are strong owners or, or, or what we call weak owners. And why we've done this is in order to be able to do, do our analysis on the topic. Because, of course, if you are a weak owner that don't really have uh, much influence in the company, then I guess we wouldn't really expect there to be any differences between companies in, in terms of, of financial performance. Because the whole purpose of, uh, of this report is to... to investigate whether ownership type actually matters. And what we can see is that typically there's a quite large share of companies have a strong owner. And in this case, we've we've defined strong owner as the, the largest owner for a company that have, has at least 10% of, of the, the voting power in the company and where the second largest shareholder has at least 50% less votes. And what we see is that it's uh, strong ownership is kind of less widespread in the Nordics uh, and the UK. And in, in the rest of Europe, it, it's a bit stronger. But comparing Europe and the Nordics, there aren't really that large of a difference. But here we can see, can see once again that the UK stands out a bit from the rest. So the Anglo-Saxon ownership approach versus the rest of the world. Exactly. And if you, if you were to summarize that approach, it would be widespread ownership typically by institu- financial institutions and with uh, without a strong... And role. then we finally get to the goodies, right? Because the whole starting point of our interest in this topic was, can we find any evidence suggesting that companies perform differently depending on what kind of owner they have? Does ownership matter? And does it? Well, the simple answer is yes, and it does for, for quite a lot of different uh, different reasons, uh, and we can see the evidence of it in a lot of the data that we've, uh, we've looked Indeed. at. Indeed, and to start off, we had to decide, obviously, how we want to try and uh, analyze and measure this. So what we started with was to look for this large sample of about 2,200 companies, big data set. Um, let's look at some key financial metrics and see if they are different depending on what kind of owner you have as a company. And we wanted to make this sector neutral because it's obviously very important that we don't allow for any sort of bias in companies in certain sectors having higher leverage or lower profitability or whatever it might be. So we decided on looking at four key financial metrics, financial leverage, return on capital, valuation, and capital expenditure. Here the findings are extremely interesting because there are notable differences. And we found that companies with strategic owners tend to have lower leverage. There is a substantial difference in both their level of net debt to EBITDA and their equity ratio. So for different ways of measuring it, uh, they do stand out in this respect. And I guess we were not at all surprised to see that companies with a major private equity owner tend to have substantially higher leverage, which is, of course, part of their business model. And then looking at valuation, we could see some interesting patterns as well. 
where the clear pattern that really stands out, whether we look at EV to sales ratios or EV to EBITDA multiples, is that companies with a major institutional owner have higher valuations. And sadly, state-owned companies tend to have much lower valuations than the rest. So these are clear outliers. You mentioned return on capital, and I guess that one might be one explanation for why why valuations. I mean, typically looking at the key valuation drivers for a company, growth and returns would be the two ones which are obvious, right? So uh, there, there, there is reason to suspect that there could be a link there. But that's not all. We see strong differences between companies with different types of owners also in what level of return on capital they're able to generate. So what stands out here is that private equity-owned companies and strategic owner-driven companies have clearly higher returns than state-owned companies, which are sadly at the very bottom of the league. In addition to this, uh, of course, trying to, to piece together the puzzle and, and, and trying to figure out how all of this, this uh, sticks together, uh, we've also looked at the level of investments in, into the business. And, and uh, here we find that it uh, differs quite a bit depending on owner. Indeed we do. And, and, and this is where it may all start to make sense. Because what we see when it comes to capital expenditure by companies with different types of owners is that the state-owned companies invest by far the most. And... Perhaps not surprisingly, the private equity-owned companies tend to invest the least. And it's important to remember that this is also after they go from a private environment, being owned entirely by private equity, to being listed companies, which are included in the sample we've analyzed, but which still have a major private equity owner. Um, and, And here, what I guess we see is some kind of link between how much you invest, but also what kinds of returns you are able to generate, in addition to what growth you're able to generate with that which links us back to the observations we made about both returns and valuation multiples. And I think that that's a quite an interesting aspect of it because, as, as you mentioned, the state, state uh, owners typically invest quite a lot in the business and we see strategic owners, so the non-state strategic owners, uh, investing kind of in line with the rest of, of the market. So, so not, not investing either more or less compared to their sector peers. But on the other hand, when we looked at return on capital employed, we see that these state-owned companies perf- perform quite badly, uh, to be frank. So could this be a case of, of a state-owned company then simply not getting as much out of their investments uh, as, as they would if they were owned by, by a different type of entity? Or could, could it be that they kind of build in some um, rency uh, in, in their capital in order to, to, uh, uh, to uh, allow for, for economic turmoils or, or, or uh, sudden downturns uh, since, as we mentioned before, um, many of these companies are typically owned for a reason, strategically or, or economically. Absolutely, and I think it's a mix of all of these. Uh, and, 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 and the honest answer is, of course, we don't know how much is each. Uh, but I think that you can certainly uh, conclude that there is an element of extra security and strength. There is an agenda which involves not only the potential share price performance in the medium or even the long term, and, and, and these play into it all. But I think another way of looking at it to conclude this would be that I would be prepared to describe it as strategic investors typically being the ones who seem to be getting the balance most right between investing, generating returns, and having an adequate level of governance uh, in, in, in deciding between the two. So, so a decent level of, of capital discipline, you could say, as well. Also, absolutely capital discipline, but, but also operational diligence and, 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 and excellence. But 
to get into the real goodies. Um, of course, the key thing here was to see, can we then try and measure in some way and hopefully find some sort of evidence suggesting that there is a difference in long-term value creation over time uh, for companies with different types of owners. And, and, and as always with our efforts in these reports, it's been a lot of work, but thankfully we have found that, right? I think if you want to describe in pretty simple terms, Victor, what we did and what we can see, how would you put it? So our, our approach here was to, to, you know, first of all, finding all of these different factors that we just explained, or how do the actual financials look like? Our next step was to try to, to, to see then, okay, so what does this mean over time? What does this lead to in terms of shareholder return? And, and what we've done then is to, using this, this sample of around 2,200 European listed corporates, classifying them depending on their major owner, and then create investment strategies and backtesting these over time. Did this for, from, from year end uh, 2015 uh, up until mid-November 2021. Trying to see is there any difference in, in not only share price performance, uh, but, uh, but in total shareholder return. And the happy answer is that yes, there is. Or at least happy for us, because hopefully it makes our conclusions a bit stronger and a bit more interesting. And one of the things that kind of, or two things that stick out in, in this analysis is that the strategically owned corporates perform much better than the rest of the corporates. And on the other side, the state-owned corporates perform much worse. And how much is much better and how much worse is much worse? A very re- relevant question, of course. Uh, if we look at the, if, if we start with kind of the baseline, which, which would be the, the middle of the bunch, in this case, that uh, th- those are the institutionally or the private equity-owned corporates. Over this time period, they have, so over this uh, about six-year time period, they have seen a total shareholder return of around 150%. Wow. And strategically owned corporates have seen a total shareholder return of around 200%. Almost twice. And then almost, um, well, 50% percentage points uh, more uh, over this time period. Uh, and if we look at state, state-owned corporates, uh, the same answer is uh, 100% in to- total shareholder return. So it, it's still been a good investment, but uh, strategically owned corporates have performed almost twice as well uh, as the state-owned. And those differences are so big that we can safely say that this is not just random noise. Exactly. And then looking back at w- w- what we just described with you know a, a lower level of return on capital employed for the state-owned corporates, a higher level of investments, to us at least, that would suggest uh, that they don't really get the same bang for the buck um, when it comes to investments as, as other type of owners. Which is a really interesting finding. But in addition to that, I think when you look at private equity, many might have expected that it would have performed much more strongly relative to the average or to the other categories of For sure. And one aspect of that, of course, uh, as you mentioned, having a higher leverage, we see clearly that, that they outperform in terms of uh, return on equity. Uh, but we only see this in the short term because, as we just described, over the long term, when it comes to, to value creation, when it comes to, to total shareholder return, uh, they don't really perform better or worse uh, than, than the overall market. And putting this together then with, with what we saw in, in CapEx, um, that could very well, very well be the case. Since the private equity-owned corporates typically stand out as those that are the most hesitant to, to invest in the business. Getting the balance right seems to pay off quite handsomely over time when it comes to value creation. Definitely. And, and in all of this, I, I think key conclusion could be long-term, so long-term investments, and also a, a strong strategic 
ownership. Tia, were you surprised by what we found when we did this study? I think uh, you could uh, say uh, both uh, yes and no. As uh, sector-wise, there weren't that many surprises. Um, looking at this um, valuations and what we've been through now, it's super interesting to see how well the strategic owners actually have performed. I completely agree. And it's really good that we did this analysis because these revelations are a bit of an eye-opener, I think, in that there are many variables that matter and you can excel at one of them or two of them. But maybe what makes the greatest difference over time is, is, is if you get that mix just right. To make it a bit more more perhaps uh, applicable, because it's, it's not so easy to simply change owner. <laughs> I mean, even if you wanted to, you probably couldn't uh, if you're a management in a, in a corporate. Uh, but what you can take away from all of this is that we see not only the differences in ownership and how it affects uh, performance, but you could isolate some factors. And I guess that's that's the most important point. So having a kind of long-term valid level of investments into the business while having kind of the, the capital discipline that is good enough in order for these investments to actually also generate good returns. And being aware as a management what the particular strengths and perhaps weaknesses or challenges with the owners that you have are and, and try and play to those strengths could be helpful as well. This has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and and uh, starting to get into a bit of a Christmas spirit here. Uh, the final Nodia on your mind report of this year, of the season, will be, as in previous years, the Christmas edition of the on your mind, the annual highlights. And that will be something we will aim to make an entertaining uh, read uh, to just enjoy quickly before you go on any sort of Christmas break, which I'm sure many of you are well deserving of. So that will be coming out quite soon. We will do a podcast to talk together about the year's highlights and see what impressions have been made. Uh, A lot has happened this year. I look forward to this one as well. And then just to give you a little quick teaser, when we start the 2022 Nordea on your mind season, the first Nordea on your mind report in early February is going to be a revisit to an old favorite topic of ours, which is corporate investments. We are going to look at CapEx again, and this time look at it more closely in the context of ESG and sustainability. What is happening on that front? As you all know, a lot. But how will that affect investments? How could it impact what corporates do on that side? So keep an open mind for that. We will be back. Thank you all for listening in. Thank you.